1: I'm JR Lowry. This is Career Sessions, Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you live the career you deserve, providing career coaching, content, courses, and community. Basic membership is free. So visit Pathwise.io online and join today. Today, my guest is Ivan Matviak, with whom I worked at State Street. Ivan is an executive vice president with Clearwater Analytics, which provides software services to corporations, insurance companies, and asset managers. Ivan, along with his wife, Heidi Gardner, is also the co-founder of Smart Collaboration and a co-author of the recently published Smarter Collaboration, a new approach to breaking down barriers and transforming work. Ivan began his career at Procter & Gamble and then spent time at Bain, the Walt Disney Company, Spencer Stewart, Halifax, and State Street. He was also an executive in residence for Battery Ventures and an advisor to Gravity.ai. Along the way, he has worked in Boston, New York, London, Edinburgh, and Johannesburg. Ivan earned his bachelor's degree, a master of arts, and an MBA from the University of Pennsylvania. He is a board member for Historic Newton and for Boston Partners in Education. He and his wife live in the Boston area and are the parents of two girls. Ivan, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. So congrats on publishing your book, Smarter Collaboration. How did that book come about?
2: Yeah, it's a bit of a long story. During the pandemic, Heidi and I had a little more time, like a lot of people did. And we started writing a couple of articles for HBR and some other publications, and they got some pretty good traction. And Heidi's been writing for a long time, and Mm -hmm. I caught the bug. And we thought, you know, what if we did something together? Heidi obviously coming at things from the academic world where she's been researching these topics for 20 years and me more from the practitioner side. She and I had always talked about how do you apply the ideas, right? And so I've been that opportunity to to put things into practice a little bit. And we thought it'd be fun actually to do something together that talked about not just the research side of things, but actually how do you make it work?
1: So what was the process like to write a book with your spouse? (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> it was great, actually. It was about two hours a day, six days a week, 5.30 in the morning starts till 7.30. And yeah. uh, it was great. Just one of the things that's just nice about doing something like writing this book is it just gets you out of the day-to-day. You, know, you get so busy with the work job and other things that uh, yeah. it's stick nice to have your mind somewhere else. We tried a couple of different ways of going about writing it with collaboration in mind. So we started out writing it together simultaneously, where one of us was at the laptop and we were talking and we would just write together, which worked pretty well. And then we thought maybe it would be more efficient if we just divided and conquered. So one yeah. would take one idea, the other, another idea, and then we pass our writing back and forth. That didn't work nearly as well. It ended up being a lot of rework and a lot of rewriting. And so we went back. It was really an interesting collaboration insight. where right? It was just much more effective and efficient when we were together, working the ideas real time and getting it down on paper. And it was really fun.
1: Yeah. I have to admit, I can't imagine sitting side by side with my wife trying to write anything, trying to write a paragraph letter to a lawyer or something like that ends up <laughs> taking that <laughs> hour. So there were 99% of it was fun and there's definitely some creative tension there on
2: occasion too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So how did you and Heidi cover the topic of collaboration.
2: We tried to make this book very practical. You may be aware, Jr. that Heidi had written a previous book called Smart Collaboration, which was very much the theory behind collaboration. And in the conversations that she used to have with a lot of clients, the clients would come back and say, you really buy into the idea. The case makes, the business case makes sense, but okay, how do I actually do it? and So that's where I really came in and we decided to make this a very practical book on how do you actually make collaboration work. So we structured it in a couple of sections. The first section talks about the business case and the talent case. So why should you want to collaborate? And the basic premise is this. The challenges that we face are increasingly complex. You might have heard of this term VUCA, right? Volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. If you're a business person, and you're trying to do something really transformational in your organization. Those are big, complex topics. And the scope goes well beyond what any individual could handle themselves. So to really crack these problems, you need to bring together diverse expertise. And so on the one hand, you have these complex VUCA type problems. On the other hand, you have increasing specialization, right? If you want to be great at your job, for most of us, you, start, you tend to go narrower and deeper over your career in order to become really an expert in your field, which means by definition to crack those complex problems, you need to bring people with different expertise together and collaborate to bring the best of what everyone can bring to the table central idea. And we show through multiple business cases and clients that we had done case studies on real examples of the revenue and profitability upside of better collaboration. The other angle, which is the second chapter of the book, is on the talent case for collaboration both in terms of bringing new people into the organization. If you get them to collaborate sooner, particularly experienced talent that you bring into the organization, you have a much higher success rate in terms of them being engaged and staying two years after hire. So collaboration plays a really important role in getting people engaged in the organization when they come in from the outside. But it's also central to how people are operating internally within the organization. People want to feel valued. They want to feel like they can contribute. They want to feel like they can bring their skills and expertise to the table. And when you're collaborating effectively, you're helping to define what expertise is required for a particular problem. And then you're bringing people together with that expertise and creating an environment where they are comfortable sharing those ideas, even when those ideas conflict a little bit. And often they do. And so there's a real talent case in terms of engagement and retention if you're getting people to collaborate effectively within the organization. That's the first section of the book. We then talk about how do you understand where your organization is with collaboration. So we talk about some diagnostic techniques to understand where are the bright spots where collaboration is working well already, and where are some areas where maybe it's not working well. How do you identify those? And how do you identify what some of the root causes are that are blockers? To collaboration, and there's many reasons why collaboration might not be working well in the organization. And then we talk about some of the use cases. We talk about it in the context of M and A and integration. We talk about it from a sector point of view. We talk about the role of performance management and compensation in getting collaboration, particularly smarter collaboration, right. And the last section talks about some watchouts. Um, there are mm. some unintended consequences of collaboration. You can collaborate too much and burn people out. We talk of diversity and inclusion and some of the ways that collaboration can go wrong from a DNI perspective. We can talk about that more, if you like. So that's broadly how the book is structured. And then we conclude with, I think, some really fascinating stories of where collaboration is going in the future. Organizations that are at the cutting edge of collaborating with really broad ranges of third parties.
1: Yeah. We'll come back to some of that. It's interesting. I think back to the era when you and I both went to business school, they were certainly preaching, working in teams. You had a lot of project-based work. So we've been churning people out of schools three decades now, probably a bit longer, trying to get them to work in teams. And yet a lot of companies still struggle with this. You talked about blockers earlier. What are the things that get in the way? A number of
2: things that we saw in the research. So one Big and somewhat obvious thing is the tone from the top. You need to have your leaders talking about and championing collaboration. You need to see the leadership team in the organization actually collaborating with each other because those behaviors set the tone for the rest of the organization. And I think about the stories that leaders tell. All too often, they're telling stories about the individual hero who went and went above and beyond themselves to go and do something. Okay, that's maybe an interesting story, but that reinforces that individual hero persona. Whereas what we advocate is telling stories that raise up the teams that are collaborating effectively, where they're bringing different groups of people, diverse ideas together, creating an environment where they can operate effectively, and then creating breakthrough solutions that nobody could do on their own. That's one big area is the tone from the top. We talked a little bit about compensation. Many of the performance management, and not just compensation, but performance management and compensation systems run against collaboration. If you're rewarding people primarily for individual performance, then that's what they're going to focus on. And they're going to focus on executing projects and taking credit in a way that heightens their profile as opposed to the team. And so we look at ways that you can structure scorecards so that you create long-term goals that are aspirational and transformational for the organization that you want people to work on while still retaining some of that individual accountability. Because you can't lose the individual accountability in the process either. One little example, JR, we looked at a client service organization where it was a tech company where they had the sales teams very focused on individual sales targets. So they were out driving sales focused on hitting their numbers. You then had the implementation Teams, the teams that actually implemented the software at the client, focused on the speed of implementation delivery. And then you had the client service teams focused on the speed of resolving client inquiries. But what happened was if you look at the life cycle from sales through implementation through ultimately service each of those functions was optimizing their own world. and Nobody right. was thinking about the entire client experience. I'm sure this resonates with you, I'm sure. And what we helped them do was rethink their goals. And we put the client at the center of all of their targets so that the salespeople were thinking not just about hitting their sales targets, but was it something that could be implemented and serviced effectively? And when the implementation teams were implementing, we gave them client satisfaction targets so that They weren't just trying to hit a date, that they were making sure that it was going to be effective for the client when they went live. And that really changed the dynamic and the integration between the teams. All of a sudden, it got the teams talking to each other about how they could communicate better and how they could work together to optimize that whole life cycle. It really changed the conversation internally around how to make a happy client at the end and how to get those groups to collaborate effectively across those silos.
1: Yeah. Apart from incentives being oriented around silos. Are there other things that you found that tend to be barriers for people individually, emotional or otherwise to collaborating? Absolutely. So two
2: things come to mind. Let's start with trust. If you're going to collaborate with someone, there has to be a degree of trust between the people. We actually identify two different types of trust that are really critical. One is interpersonal trust. I have to believe that you are going to operate in a way that is fair. I have to believe that you're not going to try to take all the credit if we work together. I have to believe that you're going to operate in an apolitical way, right? That I trust the ways that we're going to collaborate and operate together. And then the second piece is more of a capability lens. I have to believe that you are good at what you do if I'm going to collaborate with you. If I'm going to bring you in as an expert on whatever, artificial intelligence, for example, I have to believe you're really good at your job. And so that competence trust and that interpersonal trust are both critical. And without either one of those, it can be a real barrier to collaboration. That's one big area. Another area is, it might seem a little obvious, is knowledge of capabilities within the organization. All too often, people don't even know who to look to to find the expertise that they need. I may know what you do in your job today, but that doesn't mean I know the breadth of your expertise and all of your background. And especially when you get to large organizations, some of the organizations we talk to have 50, 100, 150,000 people. How do you find the expertise in that organization? That's a second very common barrier is just an understanding of where the expertise is in the organization and the networks in order to actually tap in and bring those people to bear on a
1: particular project. Expertise is one of those areas. Some companies have tried to codify it in a database that people can search. Did you encounter any companies that have done a really good job with that? I've seen companies try that. I've worked for it. I don't know that it's really had any needle moving effect.
2: Yeah, I can remember way back when I was at Bain, we tried to have a knowledge management system like that. So I think yes and no. We didn't see any successful examples of trying to codify the institutional knowledge of the organization just moves too quickly. There's too much of it. There's a lot of effort to actually try to quantify that. We did see increasing success in two directions around identifying where the expertise lies. And we saw some organizations that were simply creating simple profiles for people that just said, I'm good at these four things, or I'm very interested in these three or four things. And it was very searchable, right? You could see who was who believes that they are a subject matter expert in whatever that may be, supply chain management or artificial intelligence or whatever that may be. So that was relatively simple. Increasingly, we're seeing the use of some of the newer chat facilities, whether it's Microsoft Teams or other platforms like that, where you can create communities of interest. And so it's through Not trying to codify the information, but trying to create ways to more quickly access that information through communities of interest with some of the more modern chat and communication functions can be really powerful.
1: Yes. Basically, you're creating the forum and letting people find their way to it as opposed to trying to overly handhold them to it.
2: You got it. You got it. And when that's done well, those. Forums and communities can be self-generating, right? People create communities of interest, they join, they leave, right? And so you find out and it's, you start what, one of the things that it does is it very rapidly magnifies your network because then it's not just who do I know, but I can go to this community and say, okay, here's what I'm looking for. Who do you guys? And that really very rapidly opens up the world to being able to find that expertise.
1: Yeah. And people talk a lot about your second order connections being, A real source of untapped potential because odds are a lot of your first order connections do work similar to what you do. Hmm. But when you factor in their connections, you get friends, you get family, you get people they've worked with before. So you get a much higher degree of variability and often confined sort of an order of magnitude, more breadth and expertise in that second order than what you get in the first one. And a lot of people, I think, underappreciate going one level out, right? Having a friend introduce them to somebody that they think that they might benefit from getting to know. There's a lot there, I think. Oh,
2: there's no doubt. And when I have friends and colleagues who are thinking about their job search, for example, those informal net- formal networks are incredibly powerful in the job search process. But in the book, we have a little, small little piece of analysis that I think is really interesting. We have, it's just an example, it's a network map of two people that we call twins. They are same graduation year, same company, same major and same division within a professional service firm. So very similar profiles. Uh, And we look at the network maps of the two. One has a relatively small network. One has a massive network. And the larger network is not just in terms of the number of people, but it's also the number of different divisions within the organization that they're collaborating with. To your point, they're more broadly networked into the organization. But it also shows that the interconnections between that individual's network is deeper. So it's not just bilateral conversations. Those people are talking with each other as well. And when you look at the results driven by those two twins, as we described them, it's dramatic. The twin with that deeper network has four times higher output than the one with the smaller network.
1: Yeah. And you brought up this point. I've been thinking about it as I've been working my way through the book about tapping into Teams data you know to look at who chats with whom how often do they chat with whom and then potentially getting into doing some kind of ai based analysis of the substance of those chats to figure out who is asking for help and who's giving help and there's an element of that probably feels very big brothery at the same time there is a lot to be learned from that in terms of where are those bright spots as you called them in the book of collaboration that you really want to tap into more strategically because They're there, they're bought in, they're active. So they're a willing audience, if you will.
2: Totally. Yeah, I agree. You have to be thoughtful about how far you want to take some of that analysis, particularly when you start to think about the identification of individual names against those. But there's very powerful analysis that you can do on an anonymized basis. That's just looking at teams and cohorts. You don't necessarily need to know who's in the team in order to identify whether a particular group is or isn't collaborating broadly, or also whether there are individuals within a team or maybe even leaders of teams who have smaller networks who are communicating in a more narrow way to try to identify where there are opportunities to help people to develop their networks and understand the value of collaboration. Yeah. The tools that you have now around some of that communication and network analysis is really powerful. The other thing that you may have picked up in the book is we talk about overcommitment, one of the Another big barrier, in a sense, to collaboration is when people get overcommitted, right? Because while collaboration fundamentally is really good, that doesn't mean more collaboration is better. You can have too much collaboration, right? You can have people pulled onto too many teams. You can have people stretched too thin. You can have them burning out. And actually, at a certain point, having more people on a project becomes somewhat dysfunctional, right? It just becomes too large a group. And you can actually have too much collaboration or overcommitment within the organization. And things like timesheet records or some of that teams or chatter analysis can be also very helpful in trying to help you figure out who's overcommitted, right? And who's at the risk of burning out.
1: Yeah, there's definitely ways to look at that. Again, being sensitive to individual data and privacy and all of that. But you can certainly see who's on really late at night, whose active day is longer than X hours. Who's working
2: 100-hour weeks, right? Yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Who's
2: on too many projects? Again, there's an interesting graph in the book where we look at a biotech organization and look at the number of projects that people were on. And there was this very long tail where there were some people, actually a large number of people who were on seven, eight, nine, up to 15 projects. Yeah. One of the things that we Noticed in that was that not infrequently it was women and people of color who were actually spread across multiple projects. And what was happening was organizations for all the right reasons have DNI initiatives where they want to have more women and people of color on projects, for example. There has to be a woman on every new client deal team, right? If they're in a sales process. And the intention is great. The problem is that you you don't manage it very carefully, you can end up stretching people too thin. And then what happens? So then people are stretched too thin. They can't have as much impact as they would like to have because they're working on too many projects. If they don't have as much impact, they may not get rated performance-wise as well at the end of the year, which limits their career progression opportunities. Combine that with getting burnt out and all of a sudden you start to see higher turnover amongst the very groups that you are trying to actually embrace and help develop. So you really have to be careful around how, it's why we call it smarter collaboration, right? It's not just about collaboration. It's about doing it in a
1: smart, intentional. In the middle part of the book, you talk about seven dimensions that define how people approach collaboration, Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a little bit of a test, but can you describe the framework just in terms of maybe give a few examples? I won't make you quote all seven of them, but yeah, thank you. Uh, it would be it would seven be good times two be, is
2: 14. Yeah, exactly. The idea is this, I'll start with the central idea. People kept asking us, should I recruit people who are good collaborators? Mm. And we did a lot of analysis to try to figure out, is there a personality type that is a really good collaborator? And our conclusion is No actually. Excellent collaboration, smarter collaboration is about understanding your collaborative tendencies and using them effectively in a particular context. And so we identified seven dimensions where each dimension has two poles, as it were. So for example, let's take risk. You can be a risk spotter or a risk seeker. A risk spotter is someone who tends to identify the risks in a particular issue that they may be looking at. They may be very good at assessing the downside of what's happening and thinking about how do you mitigate the downside. Right, So that can be really productive to be a risk spotter. Other people are more risk seekers. They really embrace the idea of risk. They like Putting themselves out there and taking chances and thinking about, okay, this might have a 10% chance of success, but if we win, massive opportunity. And oftentimes you find a lot of energy around those people who are really pushing the organization to try new things and experiment. Neither one of those, if you have only one or the other, that may not be very healthy for an organization. Mm -hmm. If you want to have an effective team collaborating well and come up with a really innovative breakthrough answer that you can actually implement, It can be really helpful to have both the risk seeker who's coming up with these great ideas and pushing the boundaries and the risk spotter who's saying, great idea. Now, how do we manage the risk so that we maximize our probability of success as an example?
1: Yeah, a similar example. I think you talked about it. It's what concrete versus conceptual. Complex Complex. and Yeah.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So a complex thinker, similar in some ways, loves ambiguous problems. They love thinking outside the box about where's the future going. A concrete thinker is thinking about, well, very practical. How do I implement something? If you're on a project where you're trying to innovate, innovation is the real innovation requires both creativity and execution, right? Because if you don't bring the idea to market and execute on it, it's not very innovative. It doesn't do anybody any good. So you need both those skill sets. You need the complex thinkers who know how to take these ambiguous problems and structure them and define them and think about how to frame a particular challenge. And you need the concrete thinkers who are saying, okay, well, now we've got a deadline, we've got a hit, we've got a process that we need to go through. If we're going to execute on this, we need to think about the resources we need to bring to bear. So again, having that complex and concrete skill set within your teams is incredibly powerful. And if your team is dominated by one or the other, your chances of success are lower. If you're all complex thinkers, you may never get to the practical of, how do I actually implement this thing? And if you're all concrete thinkers, you may not be thinking out of the box and really coming up with the breakthrough ideas.
1: Yeah. So you argue basically for seeking a diverse population of people across these seven dimensions. And then whether you're doing, I guess, seeking internally or seeking people externally, trying to fill in for some of the gaps. You talked about hiring earlier in the conversation, other than trying to get that diversity of collaboration types in terms of people's own styles. What else do you and Heidi recommend in terms of how people should think bringing collaboration into the interview process when they're looking at hiring somebody?
2: First of all, we wouldn't advocate using the tool that we developed, that psychometric tool in the interview process, in the hiring process. It's not the appropriate application of it. But we think a case interview method can be really powerful. Get people talking about their views on collaboration, where they've collaborated effectively, where they've demonstrated their ability to bring their strengths, their unique strengths to bear. And also, it's a particular challenge we often see for people to collaborate with peers, Mm -hmm. people of equal status and power. It's not that hard to collaborate with your direct reports, right? they report to you and you can manage the dynamic there. Much harder, to collaborate with a group of peers, especially if you're following the tenets of smarter collaboration and you're trying to bring people with really diverse views together. Because when you bring those diverse views together, you're going to create some conflict. You're going to have differing opinions. And it's a real skill to be able to manage a group of equally powerful people who come at something with different perspectives and views and to be able to get them to collaborate effectively. I think through that kind of interview process, you can have people talk about their experiences and concrete examples of how they've been able to
1: collaborate effectively. We've talked a little bit about collaboration within a company. You also cover collaboration you mentioned earlier in the context of M&A, And with all the discussion about open architecture, ecosystems, all that kind of network economy type of thing, what should companies be doing to think about expanding the sort of realm of collaboration outside their own four walls?
2: Yeah, it's such an important Topic. I'm glad you brought it up. So, if we go back to that earlier definition of smarter collaboration, it's about individuals. I talked about individuals becoming increasingly specialized in order to become world class at what they do. That on the individual level, but that on the organizational level as well. Organizations can't be great at everything. The whole value chain of what the customer may need, and so for or increasingly for organizations to be successful, they need to focus. They need to decide where their real Differentiation is going to be and really invest in that. And then work with partners who can bring those other capabilities to bear that are going to get the end customer exactly what they need. And we certainly see this all the time in my world of software. And so, what we advocate is having a very structured approach to how you partner with third parties. Again, starting with the top to understand. What's the role of the partnership, right? And really create a sense of the importance of having a partner. Lots of organizations can be very defensive about partnerships, right? The Not invented here attitude, or they may have a development organization, a technology development organization that believes they can build everything themselves. Or you may even be partnering with people who are in some ways competitors in the past. Right. And so having that tone from the top that says these partnerships are important, is really critical. And then when you go into the conversations, you need to get aligned with the partner on the expectations. Are both parties clear what you're trying to get out of the partnership and what you're going to put into it and what you're going to get out of it? And then also think about the governance of the relationship. How do you make sure that you have clear goals that you are measuring your success and driving the partnership forward towards your collective ends? And then a fourth idea is around Periodically revealing. Sometimes Mm -hmm. these partnerships last years. You may have leadership changes. You may have people changing on the teams. It's very useful to go back and kick these things off again periodically or even assess, is it still worth doing? And if it is, maybe reviving it and giving it new energy or if it isn't saying, okay, wind this thing
1: down. Mm -hmm. Talk about AstraZeneca as one of your examples in the book. I was struck just listening or I guess reading what the individual from AstraZeneca had to say about how they almost interviewed companies for how they're thinking about the partnership. It's incredibly thorough, deliberate. It's very much on one end of the spectrum, I would imagine, in terms of the depth of thinking that they put into, is this other player really up for the kind of partnership that we need to be successful? Probably that gets glossed over a lot, I would imagine. I think that and the culture
2: side of things, right? Is there a cultural fit between the organizations? Yeah, I thought AstraZeneca was a great case study in how to Mm. do this well. Now, in the pharma and biotech industry, these types of partnerships are An absolutely essential part of the business model. So they're really focused. They spend a lot of time on it and they're pretty mature in the process around it, as you said. But I think there's a lot of really good learnings for other organizations who, like you said, oftentimes we found go into these things in a more casual way without really doing the hard diligence to make sure that it's going to be successful.
1: Yeah, that's very true. You talk in the latter part of the book about some of the issues that can arise when you try to foster collaboration. Can you give maybe a quick summary or a few examples of those? Yeah, we talked about a couple of them. We talked about
2: some of the challenges around diversity and inclusion. One of the big watch outs there is making sure that you're using collaboration in an effective way to achieve your DNI goals and ends, but also not going to the extreme, which can have the negative impacts that we talked about of actually overcommitting people and burning people out. We think collaboration can be an incredibly powerful means to help achieve your diversity and inclusion goals. But you have to be very thoughtful about how you apply it. It's worth maybe just as a tangent there, JR, this is an important theme. We think very much of collaboration as a means, not an end. You are collaborating for a reason, to achieve some kind of goal in your organization. You're not just trying to get people to collaborate because it's, nice and feels good and it's warm and fuzzy. That's one big watch out. We talked about overcommitment, which is a real challenge, right? And so you have to be very thoughtful about making sure that you're very deliberate about the expertise that is needed to tackle a particular problem and then constructing a, a diverse team and not just Diverse in the common sense of gender or race, but diverse in background and experiences and thinking, which is, also, which is critical for real breakthrough thinking. But then making sure that you are also managing that process over time. Because as projects evolve and change, you may need to revisit who's on the team and what types of expertise that you need. So you need to really manage the life cycle. The other the third area that we talk about is performance pressure. In times of crisis, people tend to revert to their baseline in two ways. They tend to want to go it alone and they tend to revert back to things that have worked for them in the past. Let's touch on the first piece of go it alone. And collaboration takes effort. Everything that we're talking about takes time, right? You have to identify the people and the expertise that you need to bring together. You need to work hard to get the dynamic working amongst the team. It's a lot of effort. Oftentimes, particularly in times of pressure, People will say, it's better if I do it myself. And I'm just Mm. going to go get it done. I'm just going to do it. You're probably not going to get as good an answer if you just go it alone as you would if you had actually brought people together and collaborated and had all those ideas coming to the table. So that's the first piece. The second piece is around risk aversion. In times of crisis, people tend to revert back to things that worked in the past. Well, just because something worked in the past doesn't mean it's going to work in this new situation in the future. And there's a risk if you don't have a diverse group of people working on and thinking about a problem that you get either just a repeat of what worked in the past, which may or may not be applicable in the future, or you get a bit of groupthink. Okay, we did this before. You end up getting the same group of people together who worked on the problem in the past, and you end up with the same answer in the future. Mm -hmm. So you really have to think, particularly in under pressure or in times of crisis, that you are ensuring that people are collaborating effectively.
1: started writing this book, as you mentioned earlier, during the pandemic. How do you feel like from the research that you've gathered, how did everybody working virtually for those couple of years that we all pretty much did, at least the office part of the world, how did that affect collaboration positively and negatively?
2: I think it was a huge change for organizations. Actually, the first article that Heidi and I wrote for Harvard Business Review came out the day that Facebook Microsoft and Apple sent all of their people home during the pandemic and started the kind of wave of remote work. And that article talked about seven strategies for collaborating in a remote environment. It's had enormous changes, I think, in two ways, JR. One is in the way people interoperate, right? So existing teams all of a sudden are remote. And so some of the serendipity that happens when people are just engaging in the hallways and coming across each other or working informally are just different in a remote environment than they were when everybody's walking around the office together. It requires some deliberate effort to create opportunities for people to engage in informal ways if you're working fully remote. Now, maybe one option is just to bring people together periodically because many organizations aren't fully remote at this stage. But you really have to think about how you're getting people interacting and creating opportunities for people who don't necessarily have meetings with each other where you're coming together on video to interact and how you are tapping into that diverse community in these conversations so that you're mixing up the groups and you're bringing new ideas together. So there's one challenge in remote work around the existing teams. Another big challenge is around integrating your new people. Any company that I ever started with, you're in the office on day one and you're automatically meeting people, walking in the halls, bumping, you're doing training together, right? It's a very engaged personal environment. Now, oftentimes people are literally just changing laptops and they change their job, right? Yeah. <laughs> they don't have to move anywhere. And you know what the research shows is that if people are not integrated and collaborating effectively in the first six months, there's a dramatic drop-off in the likelihood that they will be in the organization two years later. So another thing to really think about is how are you getting your new people to collaborate right out of the as right. soon as they come in? How are they building their networks, finding their mentors, collaborating to learn how the organization works right away? Because if that's not happening in the first six months, much greater probability they won't be there in two
1: years. Yeah, that was another point that really struck me is the importance of those early days toward solidifying whether somebody's going to be there for the longer term.
2: Yeah. Gallup does this amazing poll every year. They have millions of respondents. And one of the key questions that they tease out in the polls is, do people feel like they have the ability to do their best at work every day? You've probably seen this. And when the answer to that is yes. A whole string of beneficial metrics for the organization around revenue and profit and talent retention and other things. But what we believe is critical to helping people answer that question, I can do what I do best every day, is through collaboration. Right? because it's through collaboration that they can really bring their unique expertise and have mm-hmm. an impact.
1: So what does the future hold? The last part of the book talks about the world ahead. So what does the future yeah. hold for collaboration?
2: I think one of my favorite case studies in the book is about an organization called OceanX, founded by Ray and Mark Dalio. And they're doing some incredible things around ocean research. They've built a ship with incredible technology, they're partnering with world-class organizations like the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And their goal is not just to do world-class scientific research, which they're absolutely doing. They've made some amazing discoveries already, but their goal is to try to bring that to the world, right? And to get people excited, engaged, and understand the importance of the oceans. So to do that, they're working with the likes of James Cameron to film a lot of what they're doing. And they were working with Leonardo DiCaprio as well. And then to get the ideas out to children, they developed a collaboration with Crayola so that kids can interact and engage and draw some of the ideas here. So I thought that was just a really cool example of bringing together Technology. I forgot to mention the partnership with Microsoft around some of the holographic imaging technology they use, so that the researchers can collaborate real time. Plus, the sort of entertainment community to try to bring the messages out to the broader world, and the creative and arts community with Crayola to try to bring the idea to kids. So, what we're seeing is people pushing the boundaries of the types of organizations they're collaborating with. If you're going to solve these really big, complex problems, whether it's yeah. space exploration or climate change or saving the oceans, you need a whole host of organizations collaborating effectively to solve those problems. And then we see an increasing role for technology in helping with the communication and analysis of what's happening. And there's really exciting, we have a couple of little case studies around the use of artificial intelligence, for example, in ways that is helping drive creativity and communication amongst organizations. So it's the future's pretty bright, we think, in the way groups start to collaborate to tackle some of these really big, important challenges.
1: Yeah, there's the big important challenges that require more than, I'll say, casual collaboration. And then there's crowdsourcing is a great example of something that wasn't really feasible until the sort of social network world evolved.
2: Totally. There's a couple of examples in the book where they're solving these really complicated analytical problems problems through crowdsourcing. And you just get people who have a passion for this stuff. It could be a a guy sitting in Poland who was writing and cracking these problems that were never uh, solvable before. And what's particularly interesting about some of those examples in the book is the profile of the people who are solving these problems are very unexpected. They're not the people that probably would have gotten hired by the company to work on the problem. They're totally left field from the traditional recruiting profile. And yet they're the ones who are solving the problem. I think that's amazing. and really just goes to the wisdom of the crowd, like you said, and bringing really diverse experience together to solve some of these problems.
1: Yeah. Given that this is a career-focused podcast, we've focused up until now on collaboration. How do you think collaboration can help somebody in their own career, either within their job, externally, networking, when they're between jobs. Any thoughts on that? First, as we say
2: right out in the first two chapters of the book, we believe collaboration is fundamental for business success and talents. So I go back to those two twins. The twin who had the bigger network was far more effective and successful than the one who had the smaller network. We fundamentally believe that developing those networks and developing your understanding, your collaborative tendencies back to those seven dimensions of collaboration and thinking about how to use them effectively, that is critical and is likely to lead to more personal and business success. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, we touched on a little bit on the idea of networking for your own career development. The broader your network and those second and third order connections can be massively helpful as you're thinking about kind of next in my life and creating that serendipity of finding new opportunities out there. So yeah, collaborating on the job day-to-day, critical for your personal success and then on the job and then those networks can be really helpful for identifying long-term things. I think about my own career. I've had the pleasure of working at places as different as Procter & Gamble and Bain & Company and the Walt Disney Company. All of those moves
1: came, with the exception of
2: one, which was a recruiter,
1: came from personal networks
2: and a lot of serendipity.
1: Yeah, I mean, that networking, I tell people all the time when they call for job search advice, you've got to work the network and you've got to work your network's network. And it's a game where it's like, you just need one hit out of all of the tries. But you oh, typically, right. especially as you get more senior, you just got to go and go and keep having those conversations until you find the thing that's going to work. For sure. The
2: statistics are pretty clear, even at the executive level. Yeah. Most people don't find their jobs through a headhook. they find it through the networks.
1: Or by applying on a job board
2: by applying on a job board. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. In many organizations that I've worked in, those jobs are filled before they hit the
1: job board. Yeah, it's very true. So what's next for you? What's next for you with the book? What's next for the broader smart collaboration initiative that the company started with Heidi and all of that?
2: Yeah. Heidi spends most of the time on the company, but the behavioral assessment tool is getting a lot of traction and is being used by a lot of coaches and organizations for developing collaboration in their own organization. We are actually launching a toolkit through Harvard Business Review Press. So for folks that buy the book, there will be starting next month, a toolkit available to help people implement some of these ideas and do some of the diagnostics that
1: we talked about. And right now, we're just having a lot of fun talking in conversations like this, talking about the ideas and getting the message out there. Good. And I think back, you and I met for a drink probably two and a half years ago, not long after you you left, you were talking about doing some work with Heidi, doing some writing, creating some intellectual property. So it's very much played out that way.
2: It's been great. I've been so fortunate to do some fun things in life. And like I said, I'm having a great time at Clearwater Analytics, the company I work at now has been wonderful. And to have do this on the side and stretch my brain in some other directions is uh, a lot of fun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Last question, career advice that you would give the audience listening today. Well, that's a
2: broad question. I think people underestimate the value Of in person interactions. I Mm. think, particularly, young folks today who are coming into the workforce or maybe have been in for a couple of years seem to believe that you can have a successful career fully remote. I don't believe it. I really don't. I think the value of those personal interactions and the serendipity of being in the office can't be matched. What I tell people, particularly the younger folks that I hire, is Remote is I love working remote. I work remote. I'm remote today. So I'm all for I think it can be very productive. But I think if that's the only way you're working, you're actually gonna put yourself at a disadvantage relative to the people who are coming into the office at least occasionally and interacting.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and it's interesting. I don't find it so much with the young people in our company and that I interact with more generally. I think it's more, it feels like the people who are, we'll say 10, 15 years into their career, who already have the relationships, who were there before the pandemic, who have childcare situations that they're dealing with. They're the ones I feel like who are more pushing for being fully remote than the kids who are straight out of college or university. They actually like the social aspect of it and tend to be in most days.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I can see why that would be the case. And particularly for folks who have maybe been in an organization for a while and have those established. Networks, maybe it's a little bit easier in the short term, right? Yeah. Because, but as organizations change and turn over, decay. those networks are going to decay. And particularly, even if you're an experienced person, if you're coming into a new organization, I don't know how you would build those networks
1: fully yeah. remote. Let's go back to what you said about the first six months being really important. It takes longer, it's harder, it will be narrower. It just, to me, it, it takes a lot more work to get people over that hump if you will, of feeling plugged into the organization when they've only ever had remote. And anyway, we will see how it plays out. None of us knows for sure. That's the craziness. Uh, And it's
2: evolving every day. Yeah, absolutely.
1: It is. All right. Hey, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Good to catch up. Great to to hear more about about the book. I'll confess I'm not quite done yet. So I have a little bit left. There's
2: an audio version as well for folks who don't want to read the whole book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah. I tend to do my reading on the train. I get 15, 20 minutes each way, which is enough. It allows me to get through books in a decent clip.
2: that's quality time. I like that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Hey, Ivan, thanks and good luck with everything.
2: Thanks, JR. Great to talk to
1: you. You too. I'd like to thank Ivan for joining me today, doing a deep dive into the topic of collaboration and covering a bit of his own career journey. If you're ready to take control of your career, visit pathwise.io. If you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Again, it's free. You can also sign up on the website for the Pathwise newsletter and follow Pathwise on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks. Have a great day.
0: Thank you for listening to career sessions, career lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today, help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.